and welcome to the latest episode of Are You Kidding Me? I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Hello, Naomi, and this is Ian Rowe, also a senior fellow at AEI. And we are excited to be joined today by Jay Green. He is a senior research fellow in the Center for Education Policy at the Heritage Foundation. And he came to us, of course, uh, where he worked for many years, 16 years at the University of Arkansas, where he served as a distinguished professor and chair of the Department of Education Reform, which he actually founded. Jay is an old friend, and we're thrilled that he was able to come on and join us today. Hello, Jay. Thanks for having me on the show. Sure. Thank you, Jay. And, you know, we're, we're excited because, you know, we're, we're all sort of slowly or we think coming out of the COVID era and the impact that it's had on schools and American education. And you're curious, you've written a few pieces or one in particular recently about the whole fight for school choice and education reform and the opportunity that now exists. I'm, I'm curious for you to shed a little light on what you've been talking about of what the ed reform movement should be focused on. Sure. So look, obviously the pandemic has been horrible for people in so many ways, but but one silver lining is it's been really great for education reform. And it's been really great because parents have been able to observe directly what's going on in schools more easily. Um, they, they, in many cases, were shocked at what they saw, either in terms of its values or quality. And that has empowered them, mobilized them to take action. Uh, and so we saw you know, the, the largest number of, of new and expanded private school choice programs in the last legislative session, 18 new or expanded programs, which is really quite huge. Um, so school choice and education reform are doing great, but the movement, education reform movement is dead and is doing horribly. And uh, I've written a few pieces um, where I've tried to uh, apply the, the paddles of life uh, to the education reform movement and sh you know shock them back into, into understanding what's going on. And um, it's actually become clear to me that they don't want to know. It doesn't really matter. I mean, so the, the only thing that's more unaccountable than the public school system is the education reform movement. Um, it's unaccountable wow. because it doesn't matter if it succeeds or fails. All that matters is that the money keeps flowing as long as there are people willing to pay for this and as long as they have social standing with each other so that they feel respectable, it'll continue forever. And so I'm, I, I guess I'm kind of at the point where I'm not going to try to persuade them anymore. But instead, I think we're probably seeing a, a reformation of an education reform movement 2.0. Wow. Um, uh, well, what's, what's the best evidence? I mean, it's a dramatic statement when you say education reform is dead. What, what's the best evidence of, of the deadness? Sure. So the policy preferences um, of the education reform movement are not the ones that are getting enacted. And the, the political strategies that they're adv advocating are clearly the ones that are not working uh, for getting policies passed. I mean, in the end, this is, this is a policy advocacy movement. The goal is to change public policy. And uh, so if we judge the education reform movement by its ability to change policy, it is it, the policies it's advocating are not the ones being passed and its strategies are not the ones that are succeeding. And therefore, it's dead. Uh, it's irrelevant 
even though education reform is still going on. So I think that's that's the evidence for it. So I don't know if you want more kind of granular evidence, um, uh, the type of, of policies that are preferred are um, by the education reform movement are the ones that prioritize uh, equity and social justice as the, the purposes of, of expanding school choice and making other reforms within the education system. And that reform strategy is not working. It was designed to appeal to elected Democrats to get them to fl- enough of them to flip to join with ideologically committed Republicans to create a bipartisan coalition for passing school choice and other education reform initiatives. Those bipartisan coalitions have never materialized, uh, virtually never materialized. Um, so what what would you say would was the turning point for the ed reform movement? Yeah. And and if you're thinking about like a, a, a particular moment where there was this decision made, I mean, and, and you make it sound like it was a really a conscious decision, a decision made to turn to these policies that might appeal to Democrats. What was that moment or, or a couple of moments maybe that stick out in your mind? Sure. So I, I think that that the there was a dispute really between uh, George and Susan Mitchell and Howard Fuller in Milwaukee over the future direction of the school choice movement. Tell us who those people are. Tell sure. us. So George, George and Susan, Susan Mitchell was the head of what is now uh, the American Federation for Children, but it's gone through so many different name changes. Um, I think at the time that she led it, it was called something like the American Education Reform Foundation, something like that. But it was the main national school choice movement. And George Mitchell's her husband and and collaborator uh, in that effort. And Howard Fuller uh, was the former superintendent of Milwaukee Public Schools, who also collaborated with the Mitchells in helping bring about the Milwaukee Voucher Program. So they were partners in the creation of the nation's first modern private school choice uh, program, um, which was Milwaukee passed in 1990. And they were both supported heavily by the Walton Family Foundation and others uh, in this effort. And they were they had a vision, and the vision was a bipartisan coalition that they thought they were able to kind of assemble in Wisconsin of an ideal of ideologically committed Republicans like Tommy Thompson, who was the governor, with elected Democrats who were concerned about the quality of particularly urban minority education. Um, uh, Polly Williams was a state representative from Milwaukee who was was a critical figure uh, at that time. And they formed a coalition, a bipartisan, biracial coalition, and they passed the Milwaukee School Choice Bill. And everyone thought that's the way to get school choice done nationwide. And it was not a crazy theory. It was a good theory at the time. But it became clear very quickly that this was not spreading well. Was not it was not being replicated well, and it's also clear that it didn't quite actually describe what happened in Wisconsin either. Okay, the Milwaukee voucher program was passed almost entirely uh, and supported in, in in against efforts to kill it almost entirely by elected Republicans, mm-hmm. and elected Democrats became very inconsequential for its success and actually became its main opponents and. The Mitchells thought that the lesson from that experience was that they needed to have appeals 
that would speak outside of a narrow focus on urban minority education mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> so that they could could appeal to elected Republicans and their constituents to get more bills passed. Mm-hmm. Howard, I believe, thought that that the purpose of education reform was really to give a low income urban black students the same quality options that were enjoyed by wealthy white suburbanites, right? So he he thought school choice was good for black kids and was not that interested in in a broader uh, school choice movement um, and was actually kind of concerned that if it was broadened out that that it might take seats from uh, disadvantaged urban minority kids, that they mm-hmm. that there was kind of a limited pie of of available quality options. And if if participation in school choice was expanded, then the kids who needed it most might get cut out. So I think that was the dispute that occurred. This was around 2010. And the Waltons kind of, they pretty clearly went in with Howard Mm -hmm. uh, and not with the Mitchells, Mm -hmm. I think is the history of this. And then they built a, a school choice movement uh, in collaboration with other foundations um, that was really built around Howard Fuller's vision and not around the the correction to that vision that the Mitchells saw. That's that's my personal experience of this history. I don't know. Um, you, you guys have been involved in this um, a movement uh, uh, as well. I don't know if this is, is at odds with what you've seen. <laughs> I was wondering if you could kind of connect the dots from that to what we're seeing now. How did that, I guess, lead to what you're seeing as the the death of the movement, not just in terms of, you know, that I guess you're saying that it, it gained as a result of that more limited support, but also, you know, and we need to get into, you know, your paper, uh, you know, the, the, the current movement's support for, you know, critical race theory, diversity, equity, inclusion, the, uh, the, the gender theories um, and, and, you know, the, the de-emphasis on, on merit in schools. Right. So, OK, so once the education reform movement went all in on a, an equity justice strategy for expanding school choice, then it built its program design and its rhetorical appeal and the composition of its advocates almost entirely around those values. So the people they hired were progressives, largely. Uh, Teach for America was the pipeline that fed the personnel into the foundations and the advocacy groups. Uh, And they were largely uh, elite college progressives who uh, really prioritized equity and social justice. And they thought the way to convince elected officials to expand school choice was to tell them that equity demanded it, that justice demanded. They (laughs) offered all the options. Yeah, can you define equity the way that- Sure, so equity um, uh, is, is, is producing the same outcome, right? As opposed to equality, which would be uh, be, being treated the same under the law or being treated the same procedurally, um, uh, even though the outcomes might not be the same, right? So that would be the the kind of classic difference between equity and equality. And it's clear that we have highly inequitable outcomes between Black and non-Black students 
nationwide um, between urban and suburban students. We have a lot of obvious glaring inequities. And um, and so the, the Ed Reform movement then was built around appealing to elected officials to, to pass reforms, particularly school choice reforms, that would undo these inequities by providing um, opportunities, particularly to disadvantaged urban minorities. Now, the problem with that, and the argument for why they should do it is that just demanded that they do it. The problem is that this is not a very sophisticated understanding of how politics works. So politics is largely a function of organized interests. That is, people have interests, they have things they want, and they organize themselves with other people who share those interests if they have the ability to do so. And by the way, not everyone is equally able to organize politically because people have different um, social capital and, and uh, economic resources to organize. So as it turns out, wealthy white suburbanites, suburbanites have a lot of political power. Um, on average, they're, they're richer. On average, they're better, better educated. They're very well networked into to political actors. And so their interests receive a lot of attention in state legislative discussions. And so telling state legislators that they should support things that are narrowly focused on improving opportunities for kids in large urban school districts without any benefit to, or perhaps at the expense of, uh, students in other districts was not a winning argument, right? It didn't, you, could, you can't guilt or shame um, uh, the elected representatives of those suburbanites into supporting it. And a, a perfect example of this is question two in Massachusetts. Question mm-hmm. two was an effort to expand charter schools. Now, the charter schools in Boston had really phenomenal test score results. And a number of rigorous studies proved that they were actually producing these these fantastic test score results. Um, And so like science had proven this worked. And so the argument that was essentially made to voters in a referendum in Massachusetts was, science says this works for poor urban kids. Justice demands that you do it because they need it. Um, Therefore you must support it. As it turns out, the and I should point out that that question two was supported by um, so much money, particularly from the Waltons, that it outspent the unions. I mean, they yep. had more money advocating for question two than was against it. So they had science, they had justice, they had money on their side, and they lost two to one. Okay, badly in Massachusetts. Yep. Now, why'd they lose? They lost because they lost track of how it is that politics works. You have to appeal to people's interests and particularly organized interests if you wish to win politically. And uh, and so uh, building an education reform movement around uh, the the, feeling of the righteousness of its cause uh, lost sight of, of practical political realities and I think has led to some chronic failure. I mean, what I find fascinating about your arguments, my own personal experiences, you know, I was at the Gates Foundation in 2009. We were making big grants to KIPP and helping in the real estate strategy and some other, you know, organizations. And then I, I started running my own network of charter schools back in 2010. And my observation 
was that you you had these strange bedfellows that were coming together, and, you know, on the left and the right, progressives, conservatives, who disagreed on a lot of things, right? Disagreed on immigration, disagreed disagreed on a whole but even culture war stuff. But in but on the narrow area of kids are getting screwed, primarily in low income communities because they can't choose their schools. There we could agree. It's almost like you you agreed to disagree on these all these other things. You parked your disagreements elsewhere so we could work together around charter schools and school choice. And that's how the movement, I think, really grew. What, but it seems in the last couple of years, and I'm curious your feedback, it's just completely been fractured. More so, like when you just say when when the ed reform movement decided to go all in on equity, like why did that dam break? Because to me, that's what's fracturing the movement. When you say it's dead, you know, Kip, as you know so well, work hard, be nice. Now that's abandoned because meritocracy is an illusion. How does that comport with the with what we all agreed on, which academic excellence has to be at the core of what we're doing to be the real response to help kids who don't have choice? So the, I think that you're describing a weakness in, um, in the charter school movement. And the, the weakness is that charters require a charter, they require uh, authorization to open their schools. Yeah, I'm well and they, and they, they also require, in, in mo- the vast majority of circumstances, subsidy from someone, some assistance to, to open their doors um, because they, they frequently don't receive capital funding or sufficient capital funding to, to open. And even their operating funding is, is on average significantly lower than traditional public schools. And so they're, they're very reliant on others for permission to open and, and continue operating. And, and what that has done is that it's created essentially a, an, a education system favored by a certain type of progressive elites in, that is in opposition to unionized elites that operate its system, but neither is really a choice system, okay? So, you know, you can, you can choose, um, you know, any no-excuse charter schools that the, the five billionaire foundations wish you to be able to choose from um, <laughs> is the situation in most states if you want an alternative to your traditional public school. And those schools can, are, are doing a really good job in many cases, and, and there are a lot of families who want them and benefit from them. But that's not really school choice, and it, and it only satisfies a very, very narrow slice of, of needs out there. And so it also allows it then, both it and the traditional public school system can take advantage of, the, of capture the rent they have, this in an economic term, uh, that, that is they can, they can take a, a political benefit uh, in values that they prefer at the expense of what the families they serve might prefer. So if your options are lousy urban schools or, or uh, KIPP, and your KIPP says, yeah, but we're going to do this crazy woke stuff, you may just have to swallow and take yeah. it because um, those are your options, right? Yeah. And, and so, yeah. so there's political nonsense that gets imposed on you because of that, because you don't really have school choice. 
Um, so let's so let's talk about kind of uh, how to reverse this trend. I mean, which is to say, I don't know if you want to build a new movement or not, but but at least expanding uh, the appeal and the knowledge of and the possibilities of school choice to a broader population. You so you've written in this recent piece that it's time to take advantage in some sense of the culture wars in order to broaden the appeal of school choice. So tell us about the paper and kind of the little uh, the polling experiments that you've run here. Sure. So the look, this is actually already happening. So in some ways, my paper is an argument for getting on board something that's already happened. So first, there already is a culture war. So it's not up to ed reformers to decide whether to initiate a, a culture war or not. There is one. It's underway. The question is, do they want to engage in the war for the advantage of expanding school choice? Um, and also that because this, so the culture war is basically a, a problem where many families are not getting the values that they prefer taught in their schools. And academic quality is a very important outcome from schooling that parents care about. But values, I think, is an even more important outcome. That is, academic and, and, and work-related skills uh, can be acquired. But value formation, character formation is incredibly fundamental to families. And if you um, don't serve them on that front, they, they, um, they'll rebel. And that's what, so the Ed Reform 2.0, this new Ed Reform movement is already forming. It's, it's already being created and it's largely being driven by the, I, this is not quite the right word for it, but the angry mom groups. The, the uh, Moms for Liberty, Parents Defending Education, these groups are basically uh, representing the interests of, of a lot of families that are shocked at the values being taught in their schools, and they would prefer different values. And they are a potential huge driving force for school choice, because one of the ways they can ensure that their children will receive the values they prefer is that they get to choose a school that teaches those values. But they have other policy levers available to them, um, such as direct levers, like, well, why don't we ban the values we don't like, or you know, for, compel the schools to teach the values we prefer. And so school, the school choice movement has an opportunity to step in and offer school choice as an efficient solution for the problems that these groups see. So we have an opportunity here to expand school choice by recognizing people's problems and offering school choice as the solution. But when you say we have an opportunity, don't you think that the large segment of the current ed reform movement actually believe in the values that the groups that you're talking about <laughs> reject? Right. That's, so that's right. That's the heart of the problem. The heart of the problem is that that the ed reform movement and part of why they've become dead and irrelevant is that they themselves have these very strongly held value preferences that is they're not really for school choice what they're really for is choice as a mechanism for their preferred values correct and their preferred values happen to be at odds with a lot of other people who are actually better organized and more politically powerful and that's why they're going to lose badly. <laughs> and so if they do care about school choice, they need to at least adopt an agnostic position with respect to these values. And again, just to be clear, why don't you articulate what you think? Is it, you said, it, you know, is it this idea that 
we don't treat students as individuals. We treat them as as in as groups that that they're that they're they're marginalized groups by virtue of their race or their gender. Is that is that what are you actually talking about when you're saying that the values? Let's be clear. Sure. So so I I think that there is a kind of a, a new ascendancy of a watered down Marxism that's making its way through our education. It's making the long march through our institutions and making its way into, into our K-12 schools. And it basically divides the world into two big categories, the, the oppressor and the oppressed, the privileged and the disadvantaged. And they deserve different treatment Okay, because they're in these different categories. And therefore, rather than believing in equality under the law or procedural equality, um, justice or equity demand that you treat people in these two groups differently. The privileged need to have their privilege taken away and the oppressed uh, are entitled to uh, restitution. And this water, I mean, it's, it is a watered down Marxism. It's just changing the names of who the oppressor and oppressed groups are. And we do some mixing and matching of, of, of who we think of as, as in these groups. But, um, but it is kind of this watered down Marxism and is at odds with the longstanding American political tradition of, of, of kind of a, a vague liberal uh, notion of equal treatment under the law. Yep. And most Americans actually still believe in old American liberalism and don't really buy this new watered-down Marxism. And that is the, but, but elites have bought this watered-down Marxism and inc- especially the elites in the ad reform movement have bought it. Yeah. So it's interesting, Jay, because I think a lot of the reaction initially, I mean, when I looked on social media to your um, to your idea that it's time for the ed reform movement to or ed reform generally to kind of embrace the culture wars as a way um, to making this uh, to, to making school choice more broadly appealing. I think a lot of people said, well, you know, th- maybe this is actually going to fracture things further. And 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 do we really want to just appeal to this small percentage of the population that's really virulently anti critical race theory? Um, and, and I was wondering if you if you could talk a little bit about that and maybe in particular kind of taking the politically pragmatic approach that you're saying you're talking about you know we want to if you want to be able to pass the the um the bill in Massachusetts you know you have to appeal to uh, the interests of a broad segment of the population but then you have someone like Ian here you know who has to kind of operate his charter school within these particular bounds and does he really want to be fighting you know for more charter school space as well as against critical race theory um and and does doesn't that alienate, you know, within a, the context, particularly of blue states, isn't that going to alienate more of the political class and make it more difficult for what little school choice exists, um, you know, in the form of charter schools uh, to, to be able to thrive? Sure. So, I mean, look, this most recent paper um, that you're referencing is really the third in a series of papers. The earlier two I actually wrote and were released through AEI. James Paul and I had a paper in the fall that was released by AEI, where we looked at the partisan, the elected partisan composition of who votes for, for private school choice. So this bipartisan theory hasn't really worked out. That is, do we get 
Democrats voting for, for school choice bills. And what we found is that if we looked at all 70 legislative votes on final passage of private school choice bills, first, almost no Democrats vote for these things. It's almost entirely Republicans who vote for it. And second, the very few Democrats who do vote yes are almost always irrelevant. That is 67 of the 70 bills would have passed anyway, even if every Democrat had voted no. So very few Democrats voted yes, and they mostly didn't matter anyway. So school, the school choice movement is, in fact, a Republican movement. And so there's something to be said for trying to get bills passed in red states. I understand we're concerned about blue states, too. But first, we should recognize most states are red states right now, right? Republicans control the majority of state legislatures, the majority of governors. Um, there are tons of, of Republican states where we don't have school choice, why don't we try to make progress in those places where we do get votes, where we have the potential to get votes for school choice? And, and the way to do that is by recognizing as legitimate the concerns that Republican constituents have and trying to offer school choice as a solution to those concerns rather than dismissing them as racist and bigots that's unlikely to persuade them right. to be supportive. So that now this was um, the the first study that Rick Hess and I did in 2019 that was also released by AEI. We looked at the partisan composition of the ed reform movement. That is one of the most powerful reports I've ever read. Well, I have to tell you each. Well, so that's just the quick version of it is we looked at the campaign giving of the grant recipients of the Gates and Walton Family Foundations as proxies for the partisan composition of the movement as a whole. And what we found is that something like 90% of the campaign contributions went to Democrats. And it was even a higher rate of Democratic giving than the teachers unions. Okay, that's how high it was. And it, wasn't, um, it, was, it, was, it was of the Gates Foundation employees as well as the employees of all of their grantees, right? Something like that? It was of their grantees, yes. not, not the, the foundation staff. Okay, well, I think you'd find similar of the foundations themselves. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure we would, but we, <laughs> this is basically who works in ed reform. And so, so the point is that the people who vote for school choice are Republicans, or at least who have the potential of voting for school choice are Republicans, but the people who are advocating for it are Democrats overwhelmingly progressive Democrats. And this has led to a problem where they don't understand who they're trying to appeal to, what appeals to them. And therefore, when these culture war problems came along, they have received a lot of messages from their donors and peer social standing that they had better either oppose or stay quiet on these culture war issues because they'll lose their standing in the movement. They'll be canceled in the movement. And that is also causing the ed reform movement to be irrelevant. So I, I, you know, I think that, that each one of these three reports that I've done has led to a very hostile response from the ed reform movement. And that has led me to the conclusion that I should stop doing this. <laughs> um, I, I need to stop. No, no, that's not the takeaway. No, I think I think it is because because that instead what we should be doing is concentrating on building Ed Reform 2.0. There are people who don't they don't want to be told how to succeed because succeeding is not really the outcome that matters for their life. Wow. So you just you think it's time to appeal to a whole different group of people. Um, sure. That, that's, I, that, that, that's that, that it's not that you need to stop saying this. Um, it's just that. 
that saying it is not going to change the people who are in charge now. We we need to find, uh, you know, di- people who understand this to lead the ed reform movement. They're out there and they're already organized and they're already being very effective. We yeah. just have to understand them as the new ed reform movement. And they have to understand themselves that way because they don't they don't even think of themselves that way. They, they just think of themselves as you know, moms trying to control their schools so that they don't do crazy things to their kids. Right. I mean, but I, I look, Jay, I hear you. You know, I'm always, you know, maybe I'm too much of the <laughs> trying to the peacemaker, but the evidence is not there. So the equity focused agenda, as we just described, things that we've seen coming out of it, the reduction of standards, you know, in Oregon, they've eliminated the requirement for high schoolers to even pass a math exam to graduate, the the assault on, you know, great high schools that, you know, specialized exams, like the elimination of standards, the reduction of standards, the, the all of it, it's not working for families. And there's there's no evidence that it works. So is there still a shred of hope that the people who are advocating for these policies can actually be shown data and evidence that this actually is not resulting in the better outcomes for kids that you think it's going to? Is that a completely futile effort at this point? I mean, I think, look, I've been trying this. I think others have been trying it for for almost a decade now with, with, with decreasing success. And it's the same challenge in trying to convince the traditional public school system to reform itself, right? There are reasons why it's structured the way it is. They have value preferences and material interests that lead them to the arrangements they have. And trying to, to believe that they're, it's structured that way because they're ignorant of, of the outcome. And that if only we did the correct science to prove to them the correct outcome, that they would change their mind. I think, you know, uh, goes against how much people's, again, material interests and value structure drives how it is that they arrange things. Yeah. Wow. All right. Well, both depressing and optimistic news from Jay Green. We really appreciate your coming on to talk to us about this today. And I am sure that people will be interested both politically and ideologically in, in where the movement heads next. So thank you so much again. You can get episodes of Are You Kidding Me? wherever you get your podcasts or on the AEI podcast channel. So I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley. And I'm Ian Rowe. Jay, thank you. Thank you.